Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared hidden past. I'm Anna. Ahoy! I'm Amber. And a quick shout out before we embark on our episode. An ocean of thanks to Kate for subscribing <laughs> over at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Just leaning into the sea puns today. Um, we are always, always so grateful when folks join on any of our Patreon tiers, and especially because those funds not only support the show, but also some really exciting projects and programs that we will be sharing with you here soon, listeners. So if you want to hop aboard the good ship Patreon and get bonus content, a monthly newsletter, and our sincere appreciation, you can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. We have several membership tiers and each comes with its own set of bonus goodies. So go check it out one more time. Patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and now um batten down the hatches and lash yourselves to a spar mateys um this week we're exploring shipwrecks i don't know what any of that meant i know i read and and (laughs) it did it show it's like that's the that's the delivery of someone whose toe has touched water once (laughs) hey i passed the swim test at our undergrad I, institution. We both did because we both graduated. We both graduated. Yeah, I told myself I remember treading water like while not fully being able to breathe and telling myself you will graduate or you will die. <laughs> I mean, those I those were those are two possible <laughs> options. Yeah. So, um, I mean there's Yeah, so you know, like everything's pretty awful right now, and so why not talk about something else that's kind of awful to me? Water, yep. open It's water. another installment <laughs> in our Dirt at Sea series. As we've said in past weeks, the ocean can be a dangerous place for people. Um, and one could argue that the ocean is not a place for people at all, specifically me, not for me. Man was not yep. meant to know the ocean. So this can now be our, our series, The Dirt Walks Into the Sea. <laughs> <laughs> the Dirt had a difficult week. Uh, But while many cultures around the world and through time have been very skilled at navigating and traversing the seas. Fine. Fine. I love that for them. Yeah. It's just that sometimes (laughs) things don't go well. So we're Ah. going to talk about a selection of shipwrecks in various categories and talk about how looking at these unique types of archaeological sites can help us understand things like travel, connectivity and commerce in the past. Um, So I think the first archaeological shipwreck I learned about, besides the Titanic, was the Bronze Age ship found off the coast of Ulubaran, Turkey. So it was discovered in 1982 by a sponge diver who noted the presence of metal biscuits with ears. (laughs) I will never stop being charmed by. Um, But those turned out to be something called oxhide copper ingots, uh, hunks of copper in a unique shape that I guess looks like metal biscuits with ears, and those were part of the ship's cargo. Yeah, so we're saying you're saying ox hide, yep, not oxide, not copper oxide, not like not yes, not like no, yeah, like if you skin an ox, 
Yeah. Yep. No, we'll be talking about oxides later, yeah. but now it's oxides. <laughs> it, I bring this up entirely selfishly because it's a really cool shipwreck that you can look up if you're interested listeners but it's since it's so well known we're we're not going to do some other ones in this episode but also the Ulubarun is a menu item in my imaginary archaeology themed cafe that I like to daydream about sometimes what? I just like to plan menus as my like happy place and all the food is named after famous sites and the Ulubarun is a harissa spiced tuna melt <laughs> because fish because underwater <laughs> <laughs> have i never told you about trencher's cafe you've never told me about this. <laughs> oh it's my little mental happy place uh we can talk about the cafe menu oh, another God, time how every every day i fall more in love with you anna <laughs> <laughs> me and my my oh, mind cafe God. it's not a mind <laughs> palace it's like a little bistro <laughs> my mind bistro Oh, booster of the mind. Let's talk shipwrecks. Okay. Oh, God. The cutest <laughs> human being. Um, so, Stop. a shipwreck is specifically the remains of a seagoing or river going or lake going or so forth going vessel that has, yep. has either sunk or beached for any number of reasons. So, so either it got too wet or too dry. So <laughs> either way, the the balance of wets and dries is, is all off. So if you really want to get into it, you can start on the list of shipwrecks page on Wikipedia, which is long and which I did and was like, oh, oh no. Oh, too much. <laughs> which like further reinforced my like, mm, not for me. So but what we've done here, the only ship we know is friendship. Uh, ain't that the truth? <sighs> But what we've tried to do here is, A, try to include a selection of shipwrecks that you might not have heard of, and B, we've tried to choose examples that are particularly illustrative of either underwater archaeological methodology or of the lives of a particular group of people that had something to do with that ship. Um, yeah, as, not just... <laughs> yep. As we, as we often do... Here, we'll start with the earliest example that, that I could find, um, the Dokos wreck, um, or Dokos. As of time of recording, it's the oldest known. <laughs> I don't know. I know, right? Maybe you're listening to this in the future. I don't know. I mean, you have to. You can't listen to this. In, whatever. It's the oldest known underwater shipwreck right now. Although, put a pin in that. We shall circle back. Um it's off the coast of southern Greece, at where the coast is, and it dates to 2700 to 2200 BCE. If you're keen on ancient Greek chronologies, that's the Proto-Helladic period. The ship itself is no longer intact. In fact, it's not really even there anymore at all. So any organic material, like the wood that the ship was made of, so the ship, um, it has been, as one source put it, quote, taken back by the sea. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so that is evocative uh, and scary. But enough of the ship's cargo was preserved on the seafloor to give researchers some idea of what the Dokos vessel was doing before it sank, which... Sailing. <laughs> It was, it was it was above it the was, water first. It was up. Um, which that's like, I don't know, really amazing to think that it's just like, oh, here's a pile of stuff. And it's like boat shaped. It's yep. ah, amazing. 
Yeah, it's it's like, you know, when Bugs Bunny runs through a wall and makes a Bugs Bunny shaped hole. It's it's the op it's like the inverse <laughs> of that. It's falling apart. Okay. Just like okay. the ship. <laughs> that metaphor yep. is falling apart. Uh, simile. According to the Hellenic Institute of Marine Archaeology, HEMA, the hundreds of clay, amphorae, and other ceramic items stylistically match cycladic pottery styles. So from like the Cyclades. The clay pots yep. appear to be merchandise from an ancient manufacturing facility in the Argolid region of eastern Greece. It's guessed that these were intended for trade to small coastal villages around the Gar- Gulf of Argos and the Myrtoan Sea. So local trade, but on a reasonably big scale. Besides amphorae, the pottery aboard the Dokos ship included... <laughs> Come on. No, clean tape. <laughs> Besides amphorae, the pottery aboard the Doko ship included cups, kitchenware, and urns. Not urns with like people's loved ones' ashes in them. Like no, it's just like a no. like a like a like urn refers to a like a, a shape, yeah, sort just, of round squat vessel. Yeah, so round squat vessel. So just yeah. I just want to make sure that as far as I know, nobody's cremains were on that ship. Yeah. There were even mm. seven different kinds of what has been identified as sauce boats. So there were also basins, wide mouth jars, braziers, and baking trays. There were. I'm going to start calling you a sauce boat when you get salty. Being a little sauce boat. <laughs> So there were also stone anchors aboard, um, which are exactly what you might picture. They are stones. So they were boulders with holes drilled through them. And there were also lead ingots aboard, which were probably traded to smelting workshops. Although, who knows? Maybe there's... Well, they might have been ballast. They might have been ballast. So I don't know if they were... Ballast is something that you put in your ship to balance it and to make sure that it sinks that what? not not that it sinks that it that it sits low enough in the water to be stable. Huh. So, yeah. Yeah, so you can place ballast you know at in the hold of the ship but but sort of put it in the front and the back and to the side so that it's uh so it helps with the ship's balance. So it might the lead ingots might have been that, they might have been for trade. I wasn't able to find clarification. Oh, you weren't able to find any proto-helatic SMEs. No subject matter experts. They'd be like, this is what we use it for. SME. Okay, so remember a couple of minutes ago when I said, I can't see your face, so I can't tell how any of this is landing. <laughs> okay. Um, so remember a couple minutes ago? Yep. Good. When I said that the Doko ship was the oldest known wreck? Well... Let's add a qualifier. Ba-ding. Because the earliest known intact sunken ship, so with ship, uh, was found in 2017 yep. by the Black Sea Maritime Archaeology Project. I bet you can't guess where it was. Ah, turns out it was a Greek merchant vessel dated to around 2400 years ago. So around 400 BCE. There was some stuff happening mm-hmm. then um, in mm-hmm. Greece. Um, and it was found in the Black Sea, about 50 miles mm. off the coast of Bulgaria. So quoting from mm-hmm. Smithsonian Magazine now, 
Because the water in the lower reaches of the Black Sea is anoxic, or lacks oxygen, the wooden cargo vessel has not deteriorated much since it sunk to the bottom of the ocean all those centuries ago. Its mast... 24 of them. Yes. Its mast, rudders, the cargo in its hold, and even the benches where all the rowers sat were still well preserved. Do, do you know what rudders are? Should should I specify what rudders are? They're for steering steering the boat. They're little flaps that they steer the boat. They got those on planes, too. That's an excellent point. Just saying. <laughs> the ship was discovered during a three-year-long project. Over that time, the team located 60 vessels um, using advanced laser scanning and photogrammetry via underwater remote control vehicle to create 3D images of the ship's. Little side note here, it wasn't like they, uh, like, if you look at the bottom of the ocean just anywhere, you aren't necessarily going to see this many. Um, this is something that's known of something like a ship graveyard because um, the water, not great. They didn't go just looking for one and then go, oh my God. <laughs> they they went to this area because it was a known dangerous stretch of waters yeah. where a lot of ships had sunk. And continue to presumably. Yep. Um, so uh, yeah, they, mm. they weren't just like, do, 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 what? Like it was, what? Yeah. Um, so going back to Smithsonian here, quote, the 75 foot Greek ship was discovered during the final phase of the mission in the summer of 2017. A small piece of wood was recovered from the wreck and radiocarbon dated confirming it's 2,400 year old pedigree. The ship is believed to be a trading vessel similar to a merchant ship depicted in the Siren Vase, which is a red figure vessel uh, that uh, currently is staying at the British Museum. The vase, which dates to around the same time as the ship, is an image of the hero Odysseus lashed to the mast in order to resist the song of sirens who, according to myth, used their hypnotic song to lure sailors into shipwrecking on their rocky island. End quote. Uh, so when when in the intro you said without understanding lash yourselves to a spar, that I didn't know what a spar was. What's a sp- a spar is, uh, is a misspelled spear. Usually, nope. It's it's a it's it's the cross pieces of the mast, like ah. the the boom. Yeah, uh, that's a okay. spar. Okay, I believe I am familiar. Some, yeah. Well, fill your ears with wax. Oh, already there. <laughs> And resist. I'm supposed to stick Q-tips in there. So, of course, this ship has been nicknamed the Odysseus ship. But so far, which, like, it isn't. They got a home. Doesn't matter. Uh, so far, it the doesn't. researchers haven't gotten a good look at the cargo. It's still in the ship's hold. Since the ship itself is such a valuable archaeological resource, they're not just going to start bashing a hole in it to see what's there. Thankfully. <laughs> My note. Yeah. Uh, So um, we'll just have to wait for more news to be published. Mm hmm. So that's the oldest known shipwreck. And then to cover our butts or scuttle butts, the oldest known intact shipwreck. What's the oldest known? Oldest unknown shipwreck. There we go. We don't know. Uh, Uh, The job security. uh, Yeah. Since we're on a superlatives kick, how about we talk about the deepest shipwreck? Okay. So to do that, we're going to need to jump forward in time to World War II from, the, you know, 2,400 years ago. So Not now. 2,370. 70. 
and talk a bit about some recent, for us, world history. And for that, because my grasp on World War II is limited to very sketchy, broad details and the major bullet points, as it were, uh, the Nazis didn't win, Pearl Harbor, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, I turn to writer Stephen Dowling, whose lengthy piece for the BBC will be linked in the show notes. I'm just going to excerpt some bits here. I saw I Quote. saw the script and I was just like, I just saw Stephen and then Ng and I was like, oh my God, is it Stephen King? This is terrible. But no, okay. like somebody who knows something about something. Good. No, different. <laughs> it's like different white man yeah so quoting from mr dowling on october 23rd 1944 the first engagements of a gigantic naval battle began in the philippine sea it was the biggest in modern human history over the following three days more than 300 u.s warships faced off against some 70 japanese vessels the americans had with them no fewer than 34 aircraft carriers only slightly fewer than all the carriers in service around the world today, and some 1,500 aircraft. The air fleet outnumbered the Japanese five to one. The battle had two major effects. It prevented the Japanese interfering with the American invasion of the Philippines, mm. which had been which had been captured by the Japanese nearly four years earlier, mm. and effectively knocked the Imperial Japanese Navy out of action for the rest of World War II. The small U.S. force prevented a potential massacre, but their resistance came at a heavy cost. Five of the 13 U.S. ships were sunk. One of them was a destroyer called USS Johnston. Samar Island sits on the edge of a vast marine canyon known as the Philippine Trench, which runs for some 820 miles, or 1,320 kilometers, along the Philippines and Indonesian coastline. It is very, very deep. Um, so, end quote. And to elaborate on the very very deep several points along the length of this trench are more than six miles below the surface i have a question that you might not have an answer to i'll try um how far away is space well what am i thinking of with the five because i'm remembering um what's his name felix baumgartner who was like the, he was the guy who did the highest like no parachute jump out of an air balloon, hot air balloon. The, the guy, the Red Bull guy. by Red Bull. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So Gives you wings. Okay. I'm looking now, looking at a NASA, NASA's Earth's atmospheric layers. Um. Mm -hmm. So it looks like you are maybe thinking about mass. The troposphere starts at the Earth's surface and extends eight to fourteen and a half kilometers high, five to nine miles. Okay. So, so yeah, this is this is the edge okay. of weather. Okay. So, so he yep, he went sort of above weather he and went then to went to the stratosphere and jump out. which starts mm -hmm. just above the troposphere and extends to 31 miles high. The ozone layer Actually, that's the ionosphere? No. Is that where the ionosphere? No. Oh. Anna, <laughs> you fool. <laughs> you sweet summer child. So, uh no, after the stratosphere is the mesosphere. Duh, yes, the one in the middle. Duh. Duh. Oh, silly, so silly me. Meteors burn up there. Meteors burn up okay. in this layer, it says. No period. Just Thanks. Poem. And then the thermosphere, that's where aurora and satellites aurora? occur. <laughs> there's a doggy aurora? there? Um, and then there's the ionosphere. And then there is space. No, there's the space. exosphere. The exosphere extends from the top of the thermosphere up to... 10,000 kilometers so 6,200 miles so uh, everything you're talking about is the air though 
we are in the sea. I was just trying to get a sense of like how. Yeah, it's like is it well because you know like com- comparable distance. Yeah, down but versus like up. just trying to like get my head around it because I don't. I mean, I know how. I I vaguely know like the circumference of the Earth, <laughs> and I passed high school geometry, so I could figure out how deep it is. But it's just sort of thinking about like. So if the ship had gone up instead of down, it would have left the troposphere. <laughs> The well, actually, the 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 trench would go past the troposphere. The ship exactly. itself, the USS Johnston, settled in its final resting place at about three point seven miles down, so not quite as deep as the deepest parts of the trench. Um, and it wouldn't be seen again for seventy five years. Enter someone mentioned recently on this very show, Wild Victor right? Vescovo. So you may remember Victor Vescovo sure do. From two episodes ago when we talked about his descent and his bubble of technology to a very deep part of the ocean where somehow there was still human-generated plastic yeah, garbage. Yeah, just sat there and ate a tuna fish sandwich and got bombed out. Yeah. Um, and if you if you Google Victor Vescovo, he looks exactly like you think he will. <laughs> just yeah. given what we know about him. I don't know anything about his like personal life. I'm just saying he looks like... He looks like someone who would be an undersea explorer. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's yep. not like a, he's not a villain. <laughs> he's not a Bond villain. Um, no. And, and he's also like not a Richard Branson type. He's not like a, he's, he's like a guy who was successful and then like moved into like yeah. doing this kind of stuff. He was, like he's he not was like military a, and then, yeah, he, exactly. Like he has, he was like in the Navy or something. Like he has like, yeah, like skills that he is like expounding yeah. upon, not so yeah. much like, somebody who has just like made millions and billions of dollars like extracting labor from people and it's like i want to do something like he like it's not yeah, that that yeah. does that is and, and yeah. as we'll see shortly he's i mean he's despite having a perfect name for being <laughs> like a dc comics villain uh he is not so uh, as far as we know yeah so we might dunk on vescovo a little bit for being something of a caricature of the wealthy explorer archetype but at least he's not a total jerk that we know Uh, So quoting from the BBC article again, not all the descendants of those who have died want the last resting place of their relatives disturbed. The wrecks may be invisible far below the ocean surface, but the relatives of those who died sometimes have strong feelings. So Viscovo says, quote, the groups associated with all the wrecks seems to be different. For example, people were very supportive of my dive to the Johnston, maybe because it hadn't been identified like when he dived to see to see what ship it was. Um, but you just have to be respectful of their wishes. It was their family members who died. I'm not going to be an interloper and do what the heck I want and ignore everybody's wishes. End quote. So, like, even in this realm, there's a reason to ask the question, why are you doing uh-huh. this research? Who is it for? And to some extent, exploring wrecks related to military engagements can help fill in the story of how battles actually went, sort of in a, in a forensic kind of way, the way that, that CSI can understand a crime from a crime scene. But there are sometimes very recent descendants to consider and and it's not cultural descendants it's people linked by an event which seems more complicated well and, and you know if it's something like military like somebody dying in like in in the course of military service like they know who there are records saying who exactly who was yeah. supposed to be mm-hmm. on this boat and like that's the information that would be used to inform like next of kin. And so there are people who are alive who like 
like their parents, you know, like, like people Mm -hmm. like in their lives. And, and so it's something that is, um, it could go either way. Cause like maybe you, you know, you can receive closure or you just right. well, I, yeah, but like want it's, to it's sort of like bring it back up, figuring out, um, you know, as I continue on my, my journey of being like, why are we doing that? Like, why is like, why, is, <laughs> like, why do people do this? And like, what makes you think it's your call, like to make decisions and things like mm-hmm. that, especially when dealing with like human remains, I could see how it would be easier to convince yourself that there's no one else whose call it is. Like there's no one more plausible or like no one more, like if you are dealing with the ancient past or you're dealing with like an, a, a person that has no like known identity. Um, yeah. But, uh, but then in cases like this where it's like we like if we know who these we know people who were the, like, ostensibly yeah we we know whose remains are on that ship um and just thinking about how can we like where does that chain get broken that chain from i can talk to like the immediate family of of the the person whose remains are there and like and get their their consent or their input like how does that mm-hmm. chain get broken to now I, there will be a box of you and I have talked about this recently of like sort of working in museum collections and it just box of bones. just a box that says human bones and you open it up and you're like I don't know well, what I expected and so just thinking about like when people lose identity people when people lose when when people become specimens and just like thinking about how that's if, yeah, where does that transition? Yeah, think point about how happen. that's informed by by time and status and bias and all of those things. And so, like, mm-hmm. good on him for like acknowledging that. And I wonder also if like part of him acknowledging it is that he's not coming from. He's coming from like outside the discipline. He's coming from military. Yeah. Well, not even from yeah. the military, but just like outside the discipline of archaeology, where like if yeah. you as you learn about remains, you you aren't necessarily learning about them as people. You're learning about them yeah. as, as like as morphology and yeah. as, as uh, yep. It's really interesting. Good. It's yeah, it's interesting to consider. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he has a lot of time to think about these things as he's slowly descending to the like cockles of the earth. 20,000. To eat his, yeah. his sandwich and be sandwich. like, oh, microplastics. All right, maybe next time, maybe like pastrami or something. Just don't. It's right. You're in the ocean. You're in I there. Think it's, I think it's great. I think it's a great move. Um, it's like the time I went to the zoo with a friend in Edinburgh and she ate a banana directly in front of a chimp while making eye contact through the glass. And the chimp responded by peeing into its own hand and drinking it while maintaining that eye contact. She got owned by that chimp. Yeah. Boss move by the chimp. Uh, Absolutely. I'm going to uh, remember well, that <laughs> next time. You not don't. Okay. <laughs> Uh, well, let's, hmm, let's take a quick ad break and then we will be back with more shipwreck superlatives. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. 
So that's culturalmedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturalmedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. We are back and we've had two oldest shipwrecks, one deepest. And now, as I put it in the text to Anna while we were researching this, the Tang Dynastyist. So this is the wreck of an Arabian Dao. And so, or Dao, it's a vessel with one or more triangular or Latin sails. Um, and they are great. They're fast. They're light. They're durable. Yeah. They're yeah. awesome. Mm-hmm. They're discussed in the episode of Dirt After Dark because an Australian dude tried to make one. <laughs> so, we haven't recorded that one yet, but I <laughs> am excited. So um, so this this particular one, despite all of the positive being light and fast uh, despite all the positive attributes of the of the Tao, um this one sank around 830 ce off the coast of belitung island uh in what is today indonesia so it came from somewhere on the arabian peninsula got all the way to china and then sank at some point on the way home on the return trip um, so this is a bit south of the route the ship would be expected to take through the Singapore Strait. So it's not clear if it was blown off course or was headed somewhere else or something different altogether. Huh. No idea Intrigue. Yep. Ah, a conspiracy. Uh, so mm. the Dao was loaded with a lot, lot, lot of cargo. Lot. Mostly lot of ceramic. It. So it was, it was full of China. Um, so uh, like when I say lot, I mean more than 60,000 pieces, which sounds like a tough, so like a pure one warehouse back there. Tough gig for the students <laughs> cataloging all that. <laughs> um, 1,000. So most of these are of a type called uh, Shangsha ware, which was a mass-produced pottery style that dates back to the Tang Dynasty. And helpfully, there were some, even some dates stamped on some of the ceramics that placed the ship between 826 and 850 CE. They did not say no, 826 they CE. Didn't. Nope. 
No, just there. It was dates relevant yeah. to <laughs> the calendar they just, were using, yeah, just, which has since been, you know, transposed onto just our, just saying. Yep. Um, yep. So other significant finds from the wreck. <laughs> it's one way to spot a forgery. <laughs> So if it says like 300 BC, (laughs) so other significant finds from the wreck include lead ballast, which in case you didn't know, are uh, things you put in the ship to like balance it and weigh it down. Ah, thank you so much. Some pieces of resin, which would have come from Sumatra, a uh, pillow shaped silver ingots, a number of gold vessels and several rare pieces of high fired blue and white pottery. So like, like porcelain. Like so, like Maybe, more debt like like it's like um but like high end stuff. Yeah, your your fancy china. Um so I'm gonna quote here from a two thousand seven article in uh the news blog of Southeast Asian archaeology, saying quote It's like associated with the with the journal. Yeah. Quote Dr. Rosemary Scott suggests that the wreck is possibly the most important wreck uncovered to date because the evidence strongly suggests the presence of a maritime silk route rather than through the role of intermediaries like uh, Srivijaya. Besides the ship's construction, other evidence for this direct link include the small number of Changsha ware inscribed with Salam and other Arabic verse and the presence of rare ceramics, all of which have a close association with the imperial court, end quote. So that was in 2007. And since 2007, so in the 15 years hence, stuff has popped off. it's nice. Um, it's lovely. I, it's it's making me think of the the dish that I had, that the one that I showed you that that I received mm-hmm. as a gift, mm-hmm. and I cannot mm-hmm. for the life of me figure out what it says, and I can't tell if it's like fake writing because I can't even just figure like, out like orienting it. Like the it, like either it's like the wildest calligraphy, or I'm just like, what does this say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm just like, does it say Menzel? I was like, I don't think uh-huh. that's it. Like, Probably not. <laughs> so this speaks to either multilingualism, having a model of something that they've seen, yeah. or having like specific uh, artisans. Ha- having like like specific orders. So like if you say, oh, okay, like, yeah. I wanted to say salam, it will look like yeah. This. I need three dozen of the salam bowls. Yeah, and and yeah. <laughs> like 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 ordering a cake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so in following up on the Maritime Silk Route, because I recognized yeah. when fi- when reading it that that article was from 2007, and apparently a lot of years have gone by since then, I found some more specifics on the UNESCO World Heritage website, and I want to briefly share them. This is from the Silk Roads Programme page on the UNESCO website, and it focuses on the region of Quanzhou in the, uh, on the southeast coast of China. Quote, Guangzhou became an important center for trade, especially during the Tang Dynasty, which is 618 to 907 CE. Indeed, at these times, the silk industry, dyeing, mining, and metallurgical industry, ceramic production, papermaking, printing, tea making, and shipbuilding industry were prosperous. Guangzhou port played a key role in maintaining these relations between China and other neighboring and more faraway lands. For example... Sea contacts were set up with the Korean Peninsula. Uh, okay, so what? you say sea contacts, and I just think like sea cucumbers, sea sponges, sea oh, contacts, no. and I was just like, is that a jellyfish? No, it's 
a concept. <laughs> the Japanese islands and also with the Kamchatka Peninsula, which is in Northeast Asia or modern day Russia. I hear a lot of people don't go there. Mostly bears. <laughs> this is a lot of bears. And the, I, I see why there's no trade there. It's a real bear market. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Get you. out. Oh, you, I, I won't. It's my show. <laughs> It's my show and your show. I'm reclaiming host. (laughs) In Southeast Asia, traditional navigation trade started to grow and the maritime roads almost reached all coasts and islands of the Southeast Asian regions. In South Asia, China had intense material and cultural exchanges with the (laughs) Indians. I've had some intense material and cultural exchanges. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uh, Shopping in person's tough. (laughs) With the Indian subcontinent and modern Sri Lanka, in Western Asia and East Africa, the relations between the Chinese dynasty and Arab regions evolved. End quote. So I I just thought this was especially interesting because we know quite a bit about this end of the maritime silk route because both Marco Polo and the Arab travel writer Ibn Battuta visited the port city and wrote about it in their travel diaries. Mm -hmm. So... I recommend visiting the UNESCO site for the Maritime Silk Route because there's this whole list of linked pages of articles about interconnections between Oman, India, China, South Asia, and other places along the trade routes. And it's a super interesting internet hole to dive into if you want to explore more. I also recommend the uh, Sharjah Maritime History Museum <laughs> if you are yeah, ever if you can in get out, Sharjah, get over the United there. Arab Emirates, um, where I go and like... I've been there a Different couple Different from times. the one with the camel, right? What? That's not the one with the little camel figurine guy? No, that's the Sharjah Archaeological Museum. Ah, um, different Sharjah. Different okay. branch of the Sharjah Museums. Uh, but but <laughs> no, it's just this like, it's a really great maritime museum. It's next to the aquarium. <laughs> so it's a good place. Oh, yeah. Um, you, put your, you put your ocean things together. Yeah, yeah. and sense. so it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice complex. It's a great museum. And also it was a place where I realized like I am so into like maritime trade and but i am terrified of maritiming yep so this was when i really started to put that together oh, oh okay. low these um, i'm glad you many years there. ago oh my god <sighs> i like like 12 years ago i was there the first time <laughs> so i've got i've got another shipwreck for you not me in my 20s but like another one to tell you about um and then after our second ad break we'll get into conservation of marine assemblage um so first you, you told me there was a french word coming up so I, uh not that one I, <laughs> that's not it so but first this last ship doesn't really have a low-hanging superlative Um, But we wanted to share it because it's a lens into the lives of black and Native American mariners whose stories are often obscured or overlooked um, and not everywhere in marine archaeology. Yeah, this is an episode of the ships. So, okay, so the wrecking question is a whaler called industry that was found off the coast. It was found off the coast of the Gulf of Mexico. The industry was a two masted wooden brig. Continue reading. You'll learn. Okay. That's different from the brig that is the ship's jail. Yep. I just learned two things. Okay. A jail on a ship is called the brig. And okay. in general, like in in English, in the Navy, if you are 
jailed for something. It is still called the brig. A brigadier? Um, that has to do with the other definition. Okay, well, um, anyway, a brig is a two-masted, specifically square-rigged sailing vessel, which means that all the sails are rectangular and are perpendicular to the masts. Correct. Thank you. Yep. I thought I would give a little context there. Mm. Okay, so thank you, Anna, you ship person. It sounds, I know you said ship (laughs) person. (laughs) But what a great, like epithet to throw at someone a if i had person said, <laughs> just, I, but no like like the the other one would be like that's just like rude <laughs> like this is like weird and rude yeah <laughs> uh no, i just i really love nautical stuff I know. and that's fine and, and you're from a nautical place well, and that's fine i mean you have nautical. done nautical things i have yes and i come from mountains yep like you are from coast adjacent yeah mm. uh <laughs> coast adjacent okay so in february 2022 which was not that long ago nope a team from noaa so as everyone learned last week that's the national oceanographic the national oceanographic and atmospheric administration uh they used a remote operated vehicle so a rove Rove. uh, to explore the area where the industry was suspected to have sunk in 1836 Prior to the wreck, the ship hunted whales across the Atlantic Ocean, the Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico for 20 years. Um, Didn't know whales were there. I'm learning so much. So, quoting from the NOAA webpage about the project. Quit. While the crew list for the last voyage of industry disappeared when the ship sank, lists of crews from previous voyages describe crew members and officers as including black people, Native Americans, white people, and multiracial people. The brig is connected to the life of Paul Cuffey, uh, a mariner and entrepreneur whose father was a freed slave and mother was a uh, Wampanoag Indian. So Cuffy started whaling as a teenager and rose to become a successful shipbuilder, merchant, abolitionist, philanthropist, founder of an integrated public school, and among the leaders of a project to settle black freed people in a new colony in Africa. His son, William, was a navigator on industry, and his son-in-law, Pardon Cook, was a was an officer on the brig and believed to have made the most whaling voyages of any black person in American history, end quote. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, like most underrepresented history. That is this, this, uh, Oh, the I superlative. Didn't know, didn't yeah. know. Yeah. That's the superlative here. Cause like, I probably know more than the like average nice white lady about sort of like free, free black communities and sort of like the archaeologies and histories of them uh but i don't know much so this is um this is extremely cool that this was found and also uh paul cuffey in general was a pretty incredible person like his life was just pretty amazing i remember listening to an episode of uh, stuff you missed in history class about him so it's it's there somewhere if you in their catalog in their thousands of episodes yeah so the analysis of the materials from the industry is still ongoing because it was like like just very 
Yeah. But there are some photos on the NOAA website that you can check out and that we'll have linked in the show notes. No human so, remains there. Just no human remains there. Anchors. One final note about this shipwreck. The surviving crew members on industry. So um, maybe everyone survived. We didn't. Yeah, I'm not casualties, sure. But I don't know. But they were picked up. And reported to their and returned to their port of origin, Westport, Mass, by another whaling ship. Um, so this was incredibly fortunate for the black crew members in particular, who would have been jailed under local laws if they had tried to get to shore where the ship sank. So from there, um, they easily could have been sold into enslavement, uh, regardless of their status as as freeborn or freed. Um, so big ups to the crew of the Elizabeth because this was also a time where it was like a, a yep. like this this law was like a conciliatory gesture to um, slaveholders just a, you are unclaimed property if you are found finders keepers and you happen Oof. to be a black person yep. um, in a slaveholding state so let us take one more quick ad break and then get into ship wreck science Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. Okay. And we're talking about shipwreck science. So to learn a bit more about how underwater archaeology actually works, uh, and to learn that it's not just picking stuff up from the seafloor, you can head to the dirt. What? This, this is what you... I know. Th- that is what that your, your baseline was. I know, was that I went for, down. It's just like, oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can head to thedirtpod.com slash episodes and check out episode 86. Check yourself before you shipwreck yourself. Um, But what I wanted to talk about here is how archaeologists and conservators and anyone who works with material that's been submerged in a body of water deal with the material in these assemblages. So organic material um, and easily oxidized material like metals can be preserved quite well under the water, depending on the conditions of that water, especially if it's cold, doesn't have a high oxygen content. That said, as soon as you take those things out of the water whole different story. They can just crumble to dust in days. So what do you do to keep shipwrecks ship shape? Let's start with metal. Even if you've got a cold anoxic environment, if you're in a body of salt water, that's another issue. Salt is corrosive and the metal oxidizes or rusts just as it does on dry land. Meanwhile, tiny life forms such as coralline algae, not (laughs) algae cast in the movie Coraline, (laughs) (laughs) Neil Gaiman algae. No, uh, the same little guys that Christine Bassett mentioned last week as a type of environmental proxy. Uh, Those guys attach to shipwrecks and other critters might take advantage of minerals or organic materials that were part of the ship's construction or cargo. And seawater moves, especially if the shipwreck is somewhere shallow and in an area affected by stormy weather, which might be why the ship wrecked in the first place if it's a dangerous Uh, area yeah (laughs) concretion which is a plaster-like casing forms around metals we got those we got those at that ice cream place that custard place Mm, mm -hmm. concretions delicious delicious concretions uh but in this case uh it's basically 
plaster that affixes items to each other like glue or like plaster. It protects some things with a cement type casing by hiding them beneath layers, often several inches thick. I mean, concretion happens above the water too. If you have sort of water moving through a cave system or something like that, where it's like carrying Mm. tiny uh, molecules of like limestone or something, you can get concretions and get sites that are just a mess. But Some maritime archaeologists believe leaving wrecks in place may be the best way to preserve them. It really depends on the underwater environment and whether moving the material will cause more damage than just letting it be or doing non-invasive research like scanning and mapping. So I'm going to read some excerpts from a 2020 article in Popular Science magazine by Sarah Kylie Watson that covers some of the current methods that can at least temporarily slow deterioration and then goes into kind of the the future of shipwreck preservation. So I'm going to go into past methods and then Amber, you're going to take us into the future. Okay. Quote, shipwrecks can stay sunk indefinitely without causing much disturbance. The real trouble happens when they come to the surface. In the years spent among the fish in the sea, sure, the cellulose in wood has already begun to break down, and the only thing that's holding the ship and its wooden bits together is the sticky water in between its cells. Mark Schwartz, a professor of anthropology at Grand Valley State University, who uh, is a shipwreck kind of guy, says, quote, The problem is when you bring up the wood, it's been impregnated by water for so long, so it's actually swelled a bit. End quote. And as you may imagine... When that water dries, the boat's structure is, as this article says, kaput. The second the ship hits dry air, the clock is ticking. Researchers try to preserve the wood structure temporarily by coating the pieces with polyethylene glycol or literally zapping it with a giant freeze dryer, but that doesn't last forever. A sneaking, waiting acidification process that can begin at any moment can turn even the best preserved boats into dust in a matter of days. Okay, pause, quote. It's dramatic. I got really stressed. I just got really anxious reading that. It's okay. Am I going to crumble to dust? I mean, eventually. Eventually, sure. I didn't necessarily need to contemplate mortality at this moment, but you want to talk about giant freeze dryers? Because I fell down an internet hole. Sounds like something would turn me to dust. I mean, there's there's a procedural plot that hasn't been used yet so large-scale freeze dryers weren't invented go figure to preserve shipwrecks the one uh, yes the one at texas a&m university that was first used in 2010 to preserve the wreck of the french ship la belle was originally meant for drying meat a lot of meat like multiple cows at a time i was gonna joke about making jerky (laughs) and indeed they made ship jerky so from the archives of thehistoryblog.com which is like the only place I could find any information on this freeze dryer. The massive freeze dryer at 40 feet long with an eight foot internal diameter is the largest such machine for conservation use in the hemisphere, says Peter Fix, the Maritime Center's assistant director and project conservator for the Labelle, which was one of the ships uh, that belonged to the French explorer La Salle. And he and like 300 crew members were sunk during his... What'd he do? Because La Salle... It's like a oh university yeah, thing. yeah 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 no that's so it's a it's a like a founder of a specific educational thing yeah so the La Salle universities La Salle school like that's all just like not Catholic that education. not that guy. so this is Rene Robert Cavalier 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 there we so Rene Robert Cavalier Sieur de La Salle 
uh, was a 17th century French explorer and fur trader in North America. He explored the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada, the Mississippi River, and the Gulf of Mexico. It was um, the, the so, last one that didn't go great for him. So he he's the... Um, He's the he's the guy that that did the French stuff. Yeah, Louisiana, maybe. Yes. Louisiana. Although, according to Wikipedia, it seems that existing historical evidence does not indicate that Lasalle ever reached the Ohio or Allegheny Valley. Great. So he didn't. He didn't find yeah, all that so, copper. <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah, he did not. He did not get up the Ohio. No. Nope. Um, so thank you uh, for cool clarifying that. So Peter Fix says, quote, we will take a piece of the ship, make a mold for each piece of timber to accurately mimic the curvature of the hull, put it in the freeze dryer. And in four to six months, the freeze drying process will solely, well, the freeze drying process will slowly sublimate the water from the timber. Side note, sublimation is when liquid goes directly to gas form. It's a much gentler process than straight dehydration, and it is slightly revolutionary in 2010 in that no one has tried it before. An awful lot of engineering and understanding of the complex shapes of the ship have to be compensated for in advance of freeze-drying. End quote from Peter Fix. Donnie Hamilton, head of the university's anthropology department, says the new method will reduce the preservation time by about three years and cut the costs by more than half a million dollars. End quote. And so the costs and time that they're talking about are the most common form of wooden shipwreck preservation, which is to slowly submerge the ship's remains in a solution of propylene glycol, which mm. basically gradually replaces the water and instead the ship is saturated in propylene glycol and that mm -hmm. basically stabilizes the whole thing. But that can take years depending on the size of the ship. So it's no surprise that it costs a bazillions of dollars. So... Um What's the future of preserving waterlogged organic material other than waiting for propylene glycol to into the wood? Um, well, the answer, my friends, is nanoparticles. What? <laughs> I wrote that in for you because <laughs> I figured that would be your response. Just what? <laughs> it's okay. So uh, taking a step back, we're talking about the wreck of the Vasa. A massive wooden warship that sank off the coast of Sweden in 1628. This is the funniest and, part of this entire script. And by off the coast, I mean extremely close to the coast. The ship sank after traveling around 1300 meters on her maiden voyage. So like barely got. Out. Oh, yeah. Please. So please continue. <laughs> quoting. Quoting Wikipedia here, richly decorated as a symbol of the king's ambitions for Sweden and himself, upon completion, she was one of the most powerfully armed vessels in the world. However, Vasa was dangerously unstable, with too much weight in the upper structure of the hull. Relatable. Despite this lack of stability, she was ordered to sea and foundered only a few minutes after encountering a wind stronger than a breeze. <laughs> So just like the boat fell down? Yeah, the boat fell over because there wasn't enough <laughs> ballast. Like the top was heavier than the bottom of the boat because there were so many dang cannons. And it just like got blown over by an extra strong puff of over. wind. Yeah, the boat fell oh over. Yeah. 
So <laughs> fast forward almost 400 years and the iron and other metals in the structure have started acidifying, which is apparently something that metal can do to wood that can destroy it and something of a cascading chemical reaction. So I'm now going to quote from that popular science article again. So from popular science, not an article in science that is popular. Correct. Quit. Uh, Claudia Mandeli, a physicist at the Institut Le Langevin in Grenoble, France, <laughs> says, quote, in the VASA, there's practically two tons of sulfuric acid. If the reaction starts in a very few days, the wood can just crumble and dust. Uh, yep. Her quote. Uh, but Mondelli and a team of Italian and French researchers have discovered that nanoparticles of the earth alkaline hydroxides. Yep. A chemical compound made of hydroxide and an earth metal like magnesium or calcium can create a barrier that neutralizes the acid, stopping the destructive chemical reaction in its tracks and act as a cure for wood already feeling the acidifying pain, end quote. So um, for this problem, there's a pretty basic solution. <laughs> Chemistry joke. Uh, which, which obviously Anna wrote because I failed chemistry for humanities majors. So that's... Preserving shipwrecks means that we can get a window into a portal into a all the things that a portal <laughs> into all the things that people in the past use ships for: travel, conflict, trade, and more. Laughs. Specifically, the bus. <laughs> and more. There are complicating factors, as there always are. If a ship sank in a naval battle, the wishes of any survivors or relatives do indeed need to be taken into mm-hmm. account. Um, and there are almost always huge costs involved because it's wet down there. It's wet and we're it's, not meant to be down there. <laughs> exactly. I'm glad you're coming around on this. No, I know. Um, <laughs> even underwater archaeology is costly and requires extra training beyond just archaeological know-how. Um, usually you have to be a certified diver. You have to know how to work with whatever equipment you're using. I mean, that helps. Um, well, but despite the, but despite the cost, yeah. <laughs> but despite the cost, we still sh- study shipwrecks because they tell us about lives in the past, especially lives we might not otherwise have much insight into, as was the case with the industry. Yeah. So we've got one more oceany episode for you next week. Our month got a little skewed, but it's still for <laughs> too many months. Because, many be, because because we moved from Mondays to Wednesdays, and Amber did not update the spreadsheet correctly, and that's why we're using Asana now because Amber messed up the spreadsheet, and she is not forgiving herself. Uh, but don't worry, you get another episode about the sea. Yeah, and then we've got some more themed content on the way to, <laughs> differently themed, uh, on the way to you in the coming months. So make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes. And we will be back in your ears next week with new content, which you can find at our website, thedirtpod.com, or on the podcast platform of your preference. I like my plosives there. We're also on social media. On Facebook, you can find us at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And you can check out our uh, newly somewhat spiffed up website. Getting there. Um, Looks great. It's fine. Thank you. 
It looks really good. Oh, I can't do it's it. It's hard. It's hard being a woman in STEM. Um, the dirtpod.com. <laughs> Um, so you can go to the dirtpod.com from podcast merch, posters, shirts, mugs, stickers, magnets, and more, I guess. And more. Yeah, we got magnets. Um, resources for educators, our whole back catalog. Also, you can go to, there's a link to our bookshop store. Yeah, we have, a, we have bookshop affiliations. We, we're, we're, a, affiliation. <laughs> we're a bookshop affiliate. Um, and so we have all of the books that we have um, recommended or interviewed authors about. Um, all of that stuff is up on our bookshop. And pretty soon we'll have like... Our respective bookshelves of things that that we're reading that we like. It's all going to be Calvin and Hobbes collections for me. Great. (laughs) And so the other thing that's helpful about this is um, bookshop is a great way to support uh, small Small independent local bookstores. But But. um, also if you go to bookshop and even if you don't buy any of the books that we have uh, recommended, but you do buy a book, um, we get a little taste. So if you want us to have a little taste and off of things that you are already buying. So keep us in mind as the school year approaches. Mm -hmm. um, Will we can we see a little bit of that and it's. And it helps. It all helps. And you'll find out what it's helping so soon. So soon. So soon. Y'all, it's so good. Yep. Very proud of us. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I'm proud of us too. And I'm proud of you, listeners. I'm proud of Great thank job. You. Yeah. Thank you so much I mean, for like, just like, it's been a rough time. And we hope you're hanging in sure there. Has. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening. And we hope that, you know, we hope that the dirt entertains you. Hope you learned something. <laughs> We hope we hope that uh, it sort of brings a little brightness to your day, your Wednesday now, um, <laughs> or whenever you listen to it. Listen, thank you for being listeners, for supporting the show, for telling people about us. We could not do this without you. We love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.